This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, March 27th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, Bessie Moore was born in the earliest years of the 20th century in remote Stone County, Arkansas. She didn't have the opportunity to go beyond the 10th grade, but became an education role model. We'll learn more about her with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. First today, Matthew gets us started with a story that takes us to a cemetery. Although it may not always feel this way, the Internet has probably been a net gain for humanity. Some elements of the recent past are much easier to trace thanks to the work of ever-expanding websites and cloud storage. I personally experienced this recently, searching for information about my maternal grandfather. He died in 1948 when my mother was just a few months old. In an effort to find more information about him, I came across findagrave.com, a website aptly named. With a few search terms, you can find data and photos of nearly every grave in the United States, posted largely by a group of volunteers. One of those volunteers is Jim Harder. Born in Cynthiana, Kentucky and grew up in nearby Winchester, Kentucky, near Lexington. Jim has added more than 9,000 photos to find a grave since joining the website over 12 years ago. Well, I've been taking photos, well, since uh, primarily after college. I did seven years in the Navy and did uh, some photography as, as well as that. Flew off a carrier. I was a naval aviator and was one, maybe the only person to have three naval aviator wings. Mm. Uh, due to circumstances as, as the time I went into the, uh, the Navy. And uh, for moviegoers, my last flight in the Navy was with Commander Dan Peterson, who was the person who started the Top Gun program. Jim says his photography work picked up after his time in the Navy when he began working for the FBI in 1971 as both a pilot and an investigative agent. During his time in the FBI, he worked on cases like the Waco compound of the religious cult Branch Davidians in the early 90s. As an investigative agent, photographs are a big part of the investigation. Yeah. So I was always taking photographs. And you were also, um, you were also in the FBI during the Oklahoma City bombing yes, as well. Yes. Uh, I was in the Kansas City office, and everything except the bombing itself occurred in Kansas. Terry Nichols and Mc, McVeigh uh, were in the uh, Fort Riley area, uh, Harrington, Kansas, that's where Nichols lived. And the picture of me uh, that I sent you, well, I was at the at the little like a storage place, facility, little storage facility where they stored the uh, the ingredients to make the bomb. Hmm. And of course, the, then the bomb occurred, and the FBI spent just weeks and hours. Uh, one of the most exhaustive, one of the most exhaustive investigations the FBI has ever done. These days, the photos Jim is capturing are not of apocalyptic cults or federal building bombings, but rather gravestones in cemeteries, like the Fayetteville National Cemetery, as well as the Confederate Cemetery in East Fayetteville. I had been here for over 30 years and was not aware of the Confederate Cemetery, which is one of the most tranquil and serene places in Fayetteville. It's just a, a beautiful place. Uh, sadly, uh, 
as a result of the two battles fought near here, there's a um, the predominance of the, the around 500 graves. They're all unmarked. The ones that are marked are people that died after the Civil War and years later. I'm going to pull it up here just to remind myself. As I look at your information here on Find a Grave, 8,974 photos you've taken. Um, You've added memorials for 1,377 people as of the time of our recording. At what point did it become a thing you just started doing all the time? Well, it's just, you know, the cemeteries that are here are just so close. And I like taking the photographs, so it's just something to, to occupy my time and and just enjoy having fun doing it. So, Jim, where are we at? We're in the Fayetteville National Cemetery. And uh, <laughs> as we pulled in here this afternoon, we realized that there's actually a, a, a burial that's happening <laughs> this afternoon as we showed up. Yes, you can... The uh, funeral procession just arrived, and as you can see, looking uh, the flags in the center of the, uh, the the older section is at half mast, which is always done for the when the funeral is going to take place. Yeah, um, let's let's just kind of walk here for a little bit, and and as you come out, um, as you're preparing to take photos, um, what's kind of your process? Do you typically you know, do you keep up with the obituaries to see where someone's being buried? Do you just kind of regularly come out here to look? Well, on occasion, I know of someone that's being buried here due to an obituary, but mostly I just come to see uh, the more recent ones that have just uh, been buried. And uh, the process, uh, as you'll I can. there's a, a temporary marker in this older section over there and it takes about 45 to 60 days for them to prepare the permanent stone. Mm. So a lot of times I'll take a picture of the temporary and come back later and take pictures of the the permanent stone. Personally, I've not spent a lot of time in cemeteries. However, in high school, I was a member of the school concert band and played trumpet. During my sophomore, junior, and senior years, A fellow trumpeter and I were asked by the local Veterans of Foreign Wars post if we would be willing to play taps at military funerals in the area. And so, a few dozen times, for $15 and a free pork burger back at the VFW Hall, we would go to gravesides and play taps as part of the 21-gun salute for military rights. Jim was answering one of my questions at the Fayetteville National Cemetery when... We're looking at one here. This is Clarence Craft. There... Let's get this real quick.
or the playing of taps, you can go back to talk about your playing of the taps when you... Yeah, absolutely. This yeah. stone here. Do you find it calming out here? Well, I find most of the places, as I mentioned, are uh, the ones here in Fayetteville are just really tranquil and serene places. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, like right now, the taps just play, but just the calmness and sereneness have returned. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to say if Jim spends much time thinking about the existential element of why he does this sort of work. After his time with the FBI, Jim says he did some freelance private investigative work in northwest Arkansas. And perhaps some of the work he does on Find a Grave scratches that itch as well. Just recently I had a back and forth with a person who lives near Tulsa about uh, a person, there was a mistaken information about him being buried in the National Cemetery in which uh, it was a mistaken identity which we were able to put together and determine that that person was not buried in the National Cemetery but was in a private cemetery in Mountain Home and we uh, were able to identify the person who was from Rogers uh, who was uh, a person that was in fact the one that was in the National Cemetery. Oh wow. So it's just you know being able to sometimes solve some mysteries about genealogy and, and locations. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Tomorrow, Art Ventures K-12 initiative will open at the Boys and Girls Club in Fayetteville. They're hosting the first K-12 gallery initiative of this year. It's a hanging sculpture project that introduces students to the life and techniques of the American modern artist Ruth Asawa, who was forcibly relocated from Southern California to an internment camp in Rower, Arkansas during World War II. Public reception and unveiling of the students' artwork tomorrow afternoon from 3.30 to 5.30. That's at the Donald W. Reynolds Boys and Girls Club of Fayetteville on North Whoople Road in Fayetteville. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Fresh from being named Best Theater of 2021 by the New York Times, Theater Squared presents Sanctuary City. On stage through April 9th, this play features two teenagers struggling to navigate two kinds of unreciprocated love, the kind they feel for each other and the kind they feel as immigrants for their adopted country. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. Later on today's show, teeth. They have to do it up to millions of times over the course of your lifetime. And they have to do it built from the very same raw materials as the foods that you're breaking down. What an incredibly inspired feat of engineering. Peter Ungar will lead a University of Arkansas Honors College course about teeth from a half billion years ago to now. And we'll talk to him about it later on today's show. This is KUAF. All throughout the month of March, the Community Spotlight will have a specific focus, donations and local support for the Elizabeth Richardson Center. March is Intellectual Disabilities Awareness Month, and for 60 years, the ERC has been working to enhance the quality of life for individuals with disabilities in our community. Inflation and just everything, those costs are also passed on to nonprofits, and we, we just really need some extra help. 
This nonprofit offers both children and adult services, life skills, employment services, and even residential options for certain individuals. They're looking to bust the box with a donation drive all this month. Through March 11th, they're specifically looking for cloth items such as socks, towels, washcloths, underwear, sports bras, full or queen bedding, and curtains. For the full list of needed items or for more information, visit ERCINC.org. Arkansas's jobless rate dipped slightly last month. The latest report released Friday from the state's Division of Workforce Services shows Arkansas's unemployment rate fell to 3.2 percent in February, down from 3.4 percent in January. The number of employed Arkansans grew by just over 9,000 compared to the same time last year. Biggest gains seen in trade, transportation, and utilities, which added 7,500 more jobs since 2022. Earlier this month, Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the U.S., collapsed. With the bank's failure, questions have arisen about the health of the financial industry. In an interview with Talk Business and Politics, Susanna Marshall, commissioner of the Arkansas State Bank Department, said the failure of Silicon Valley Bank has caused panic and anxiety. But she said the financial industry at the state level is not being impacted by what's happening nationally. We have been evaluating, strongly evaluating our institutions for many years. And I'll tell you today where we are in Arkansas, uh, we have very strong institutions and probably the financial metrics uh, are at probably some of the highest points that we've had uh, as far as um, you know positive performance. According to the latest available data, the Arkansas State Bank Department supervises 73 state-sponsored financial institutions with assets totaling over $130 billion. The Arkansas Department of Health is launching a new infectious disease dashboard to track everything from COVID-19 to tick-borne illnesses. The data is compiled from several entities, including public health units, pharmacies, and urgent care centers. The new site updates every Tuesday afternoon at 3 and provides information about daily, monthly, and annual positive cases of COVID-19, though positive at-home tests are not reflected in those numbers. Danielle McNeil, a spokesperson with the ADH, says staff are working with the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention to possibly include self-test numbers in the future. Earlier this month, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders signed an executive order repealing Arkansas's pandemic response measures. More than 250 Arkansans have died from COVID-19 in 2023. The new dashboard from the ADH can be found at healthy.arkansas.gov. The Arkansas women's basketball season is over after a loss at Kansas yesterday afternoon in quarterfinals of the NIT. Arkansas finishes the season with a 24-13 record. The 24 wins is the most for the program in a season since Arkansas joined the SEC. The Arkansas softball team now 5-4 in conference play after taking two of three games against number 10 Florida this weekend. Up next, a three-game series at Mississippi State beginning Friday night. Razorback baseball team will host Nebraska-Omaha tomorrow night at 6 after dropping two of three this weekend at top-ranked LSU. The old-time teachers saw it as, a, as a, something that they could give to society. And that uh, notion has changed uh, with, the, with the young people. They don't feel that way anymore. I am with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. We are inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. It's Monday, so it's time to go through some Pryor Center archives, Randy. That's right. And what we just heard was from part of the archives. Uh, It was actually supplied to us by the Bessie Moore Center for Economic Education. And that's who we're talking about today. You know, there are times when you and I talk about figures that people... I think most people know about. I'm going to guess 
most people listening to us right now don't know about Bessie Moore. Right, and I wasn't very familiar, and neither were you. No. And, and as I started to look into it, we both agreed she was a fascinating woman. A hero. Uh, yes, and she uh, that clip we heard was she was talking about, I guess, the interest of teachers and their I guess their plight and decisions that they have to make or their commitment. And uh, that was in 1988. It could still be true today. Yeah. Now, she, in 1988, that was toward the end of her life because she was born in the early part of the 20th century. Right, 1902. So right at at the turn of the century. And she was a teacher. She was uh, an education advocate. She was a civic leader. I mean, decades in Arkansas. And she grew up in Mountain View. Right. So early 20th century Stone County, Arkansas, not the middle of nowhere, but not an easy place to get to. That's right. And, um, well, let's hear a little bit about her. Steve Barnes, who was at KETV at the time in 1985, uh, when she was in her 80s, uh, had this little bit of a report. We'll use a clip from that. To encapsulate the work of more than 60 years is a task doomed to failure, but we begin with her beginning as a small-town Arkansas teacher who thought libraries were important. Armed with that notion but little else, she began a lifetime guerrilla war against a sometimes anti-intellectual establishment, losing a lot of battles but winning the key campaigns. One senses she would have long ago declared victory but for fear of missing the melee. That persistence made her a national authority on information science. She's a fascinating character. Oh, yes. Um, And, you know, he sort of sums up uh, in a very eloquent way Mm -hmm. um, her career and her life. So let's back up and sort of begin at the beginning. Um, Her 17-year-old mother died shortly after her birth, so she was raised by her father and her aunt, and, um, well, she talks here uh, in an interview with, with Steve Barnes about uh, what she learned from her father. My mother died at my birth, and my father had a great influence on me as a child. And he, he, uh, he kept on saying to me, you know, even as a little child, he kept on saying to me, you know, you, 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 ha- you, you, you owe rent for living in this world, you know. You need to, uh, everybody needs to, to try to make the world a better place to live. Okay, she was a teacher. She got her teaching certificate at what age? <laughs> 14. 14. Well, and it made me start thinking about what was I doing at 14? I was Certainly teaching. nothing remarkable. I'm sure I was giving teachers some heartburn is what I was well, doing. Well, yeah, yeah, and I certainly wasn't teaching anyone anything of value. So this is ni- so <laughs> she earns her teaching certificate in 1916, and she's teaching where? Well, uh, close to home, and you know the area better than mm-hmm. I do. St. James, right? Which probably wasn't big then. It's not big now. It's no. It's it in even, Stone County, right? Yeah, right. So it was just a stone's throw <laughs> nice. away from sorry from Mountain <laughs> View. But um, she, she told a story. This is an interview uh, from 1988 with Dr. Tom McKinnon, who, by the way, was the founding director of the Bessie Moore Center for Economic Education. And I just found this story amazing. Now, this, of course, was an all-white community 
uh, no, uh, and they were all native to that area. Most of them had never lived anywhere else. And uh, when I go to the folk center now, I frequently run into uh, to uh, uh, children of uh, and grandchildren mainly of the, of course, most of the all the people that I taught there are dead, as far as I know. This uh, I've outlived all of the students there. They, but uh, they were all grew up there, and uh, and there was. No, uh, nobody, no outsiders. In other words, anybody that came in would be suspicious. But uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 uh, principal, one of the principal things that I remember about that situation in that instance was what they expected of the teacher, and that was that uh, you were supposed to go home and spend the night with uh, with every family in the school during the term, and I did that, and it was it was very interesting. It was really. A, Quite interesting to do, and and it was you certainly got acquainted with the children and their parents and their home life and everything. So you slept, yeah, with the children. Slept with the children. Ate their and lunches ate with them. The next day, ate the lunch. The mother prepared the lunch, you know, the next day. So I knew the children and all their, everything about their home life. Teachers would. Um, learn who their students were and meet their families. They yeah. Thought, well, let's go spend the night, have a meal or two. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, her education was quite unique. You know, she was born at the turn of the century, and a formal education was rare. Right. Especially in rural Arkansas. But um, here she talks about how she earned more than one degree in her lifetime. See, I didn't finish high school because there was no high school at Mountain View, so I just went to the 10th grade. And they gave, in those days, they gave what they called an intelligence test, which was really a, so an entrance test to get in the university. And I came up here and took the, took the uh, what they called the intelligence test and, and came to school at the university. Here and, in Fayetteville. Here in Fayetteville. And I, you know, if anybody had told me in the wildest of dreams that one day this university that I came up here and took an intelligence test and entered, that one day they'd give me an honorary degree, they would give me the Distinguished Alumni Award and they would name this center for me. This couldn't happen anywhere but the United States. Maybe it couldn't happen anywhere but Arkansas. That that's not all. We didn't hear everything, right? Though, right? Yeah. So she did go to school, right? And uh, earned a BA from Arkansas State Teachers College, now UCA, yes. Central Arkansas. Yep, and was awarded honorary degrees from the University of Arkansas, University of Arizona. So let's go all the way up to the 1960s, mm-hmm. which was a busy, busy decade for her, and she was in her 60s, right? During that time, she was. Let me just list a few of these. Okay. Uh, she was executive director of the newly formed Arkansas State Council on Economic Education. She was appointed by LBJ to the National Advisory Commission on Libraries, mm-hmm. and she chaired the Ozark Folk Center, and was wow. crucial in the opening of the park, mm. the state park there. So you wonder, okay, teacher at 14, all of this at 60, what did she do in between? So I went to the current executive director of the Morris Center, Rita Luttrell, and she filled me in on that. 
she was very active in the forming of libraries in the state. She worked with Eleanor Roosevelt on that. Um, she did PTAs. She worked in preschools. Anything, so in that interim period of time, she was in education, you know, working to promote different programs. So yes, it was that long before she founded the Arkansas Council on Economic Education, but in the interim, she was doing a lot of different roles in the Department of Education. I also want to pause here and say we probably should give a tip of the hat to her aunt and her father who yes. raised her in the earliest years of the 20th century when in Stone County. and I mean, she she develops this curiosity and this advocacy. And, and she was an avid reader. Yeah. Um, and like she said, only went through the 10th grade. Right. So it it yeah she's a fascinating person. It's a fascinating story. Now, we've talked about the folk center. We've talked about her degrees. We've talked about her teaching. She was also honored by the Joint Council on Economic Education. Yes, and we found this video from 1982, and uh, she's introduced here by the chairman James Olson. From 1962 to 1980, 18 years, which have become known in economic education circles within Arkansas and far beyond as the Moore years. Bessie Moore served as the executive director of the Arkansas Council on Economic Education. Her work and her enthusiasm and accomplishments have made her name synonymous with economic education throughout this country. She holds an honorary doctorate in economics from the University of Arkansas, and the University Center for Economic Education is named in her honor. Indeed, the many accomplishments of the Arkansas Council we cited tonight be attributed to her years of dedicated service. And now let's listen to her accept this award and how just modest and gracious and she's yes and, and she's also thanking others for her accomplishments. In the montage of memories that I have of this of this, I also want to pay tribute to the many other council and center directors, uh, just council directors in the early days, who shared with me their knowledge and helped as we, uh, uh, state to state, as, as we organized our program. So uh, this to me tonight has a very special meaning, and I'll always think of it. Uh, it was enough for me to work in Arkansas in such a vital and wonderful program. To be allowed to do it and to be paid for doing it was enough. But uh, now to have this honor, I'll always think of it as a serendipity happening. Thank you. Bessie Moore is who we're talking about this right, week. Right, right. Um, I think Steve Barnes in, in his story uh, from 85 kind of summed it up, and he was actually standing in a classroom at a chalkboard, but he said, you know, you have the three basics of education, reading, writing, arithmetic, but Bessie Moore uh, thought there should be a fourth, and that was economics. I became convinced that, uh, that, we, that economics is the bottom of almost everything, and uh, that we would never uh, be able to vote intelligently on economic issues, which uh, affect all of society, unless we, uh, unless we had a better understanding of how the economy works. And it just seemed sensible. Dr. Bervin Allred, who is a well-known economist that taught at Hendricks College for many years, said he read in the paper, uh, you know, that we were st that we were starting the economic education program on a Sunday morning, and he got very upset. And he said, told his wife, he said, some fool woman in 
Little Rock thinks she can teach uh, economics to first graders, and I can't even get sophomores to learn it. <laughs> he later became one of our, became president of the council and, uh, and one of the outstanding leaders in the economic education movement. And anti-intellectualism and the need for economic education plop her down in 2023, and she fits. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she's a treasure. I know. Yeah. And, and so I asked Rita Luttrell um, about what her legacy or her impact was. And just looking back over her tenure and from preschools to PTAs to libraries to economic education, and then she played a significant role in the founding of the Ozark Folk Center in Stone County because Stone County is where she was from. So I think her impact was far-reaching. I think she saw ways to solve problems, and she did whatever was needed to solve those problems. So, I, you know, I guess it would be nice to have a Bessie Moore right now. That's Rio Luttrell, who is at the Bessie Moore Center for Economic Education. Who is retiring next week. Oh, oh. And... Um, you know, and like she said, I wish there was a Bessie Moore now. That would yeah. be helpful because uh, at this point, I don't know what is going to happen to the Bessie Moore Center after she retires. Mm. So we'll have to we'll keep our eye stay on tuned for yeah. that. Hmm. Well, maybe someone hearing this will become inspired. That's correct. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We'll have more archives next week. We'll see you next week. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Walton Arts Center is proud to present the 2023-24 Procter & Gamble Broadway series, including the new musical Six, Stephen Sondheim's Company, Tina, the Tina Turner musical, and more. Subscriptions on sale now and subscribers get early access, discounted tickets, and other benefits. More information at waltonartscenter.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a guide to an inevitability, the end of life. Each person's experience is so different. Um, there's some people who are ready, who are good to go, and then some we have to have the difficult conversations with the family members, or the family members actually has to have the conversation with the person that's dying. A death doula offers help to people reaching the end of life, as well as their family members, caregivers, and others. That's on tomorrow's show at noon and 7, and you can find our Ozarks at Large podcast wherever you find podcasts. KUAF's The Lunch Hour is back, and this month we're bringing you the soulful sounds of Love More Records' very own Sarah Lilly, along with the tasty and savory foods of Bites and Bowls. You don't want to miss this month's Lunch Hour, happening this Friday, March 31st from noon to 1. The Lunch Hour featuring Sarah Lilly and food from Bites and Bowls, this Friday, March 31st, noon to 1. We'll see you there.
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Teeth are some of the most valuable artifacts for telling us more about our distant ancestors. Peter Ungar, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Director of the University of Arkansas's Environmental Dynamics Program, will lead a University of Arkansas Honors College seminar next fall titled Teeth. We recently asked him about the seminar and if there have been recent discoveries when it comes to researching teeth. Tremendously so. The, the way we use teeth to reconstruct diet in the fossil record has changed dramatically. It used to be all about the shapes and the sizes of teeth and what they can tell us about evolution. Now it's more about how we can use teeth to talk about the diets of animals alive at a moment in time in the past. In other words, um, we've shifted to something that I call food prints, which are kind of like footprints in the sand. They're traces of actual activity of animals that were alive at a given moment in time. So instead of looking at how nature has selected for sharp teeth, for meat eaters, or blunt teeth for plant eaters, now we're looking at things like the scratches in the pits on the teeth. We're looking at the chemistry of the teeth to tell us something about what those individuals whose teeth we hold in our hands actually ate on a daily basis. So it's a whole shift in our approach. When you talk about these scratches, you're not looking with the naked eye. No, we're looking at I've, I use something called a white light confocal profiler, which is just sort of a, a complex term for something that's basically looks at, at, at slices uh, through uh, vertical s- slices through a tooth and uses that to reconstruct a three-dimensional picture of the surface at really, really high resolutions. Can we so is it? I'm going to really try to oversimplify this, but could you tell by some of this study that it was plant-based or meat-based, what was being eaten? You can. Um, and you can also tell whether animals ate hard foods or soft foods, whether the foods they ate um, are things like grasses and sedges or bushes and trees, things of that nature. And then we can use this knowledge that we gained to catapult to learn more about the animals themselves or, or, or the planet at that time? Diet is absolutely key to understanding the relationship between an animal and its environment, okay? There's nothing more um, direct as far as ecology, which is the study of the relationship between animals and their environments, than diet because it's sort of what you take into your body um, to sustain and, and grow and develop and reproduce yourself. It's that part of the environment you take in. And so there's this sort of direct connection. And teeth are important because they're kind of the gatekeepers. They're the, the, the referees in this death match between eater and eaten, essentially. Uh-huh. And, of course, it makes sense that teeth would give us so many clues. Tissue and organs well, go te- away. Yeah, teeth are the only, the only parts of the body that preserve through the fossil record. Here's a silly question, perhaps. When you're in the field and you f- see a tooth, I don't know, do you just find a tooth? Can you tell, oh, this could be from 50 years ago or this could be from a longer time ago? Absolutely. You can, you can really tell uh, based on the color of the tooth, based on the, the, the density of the bone surrounding the tooth. Um, and you, if it's buried in the ground, it had to get there somehow. And if somebody buried it, you can actually see the sort of infill around it. So you really can tell if something is, is very old or not. 
when you are in the field. And you go to a lot of different places, right? I suppose. <laughs> How does it work for you? How does... Finding teeth. I mean, is it is it what we imagine with archaeological digs? Well, I mean, there's there's a variety of ways to do it. Probably the the standard way of doing it in human evolution research is to is to go out on the open savanna, for example, and look for little gullies uh, that are deposits that date back to the time period you're interested in, say one, two, three, four million years ago, and and just sort of walk up and down these gullies where s- streams and brooks and things of that nature have sort of swept away mm. the uh, overburdened, the, the, the sediments, and look for teeth sort of exposed in part on the surface. The other way to do it is to perhaps go into caves and dig. <laughs> and and uh, if, if there are fossil deposits there, almost invariably you'll find teeth. They're the most common fossils that we have. You're going to be leading this honors college symposium. These the sorts of things you'll be talking about with students in that symposium? In large part. I mean, I think the take-home message of the symposium is that we kind of hold in our mouths the legacy of our evolution. And in a sense, teeth are these amazing structures. Think about it. You've got to break food with your teeth, without those teeth being broken. And they have to do it up to millions of times over the course of your lifetime. And they have to do it built from the very same raw materials as the foods that you're breaking down. What an incredibly inspired feat of engineering, right? But teeth are a lot more than that. They are, they're an enigma. The enamel in your teeth are the hardest tissues you have. But Teeth are incredibly fragile. Think about it. You've, you've got to take daily care of them like no other parts of your body. So they preserve for millions of years in the fossil record, but they can't seem to last a lifetime in your mouth. <laughs> right. So, so what's the deal with that? Right. But actually, this course is not just about teeth. It's about this sort of idea that they're the legacy of, ever, of our evolution. The, the, I use teeth to tell that story of our, of our evolution, of how a changing world made us human, how climate change triggered our evolution. And that's really what the course is about, right? Teeth in, the, in and of themselves are really cool, but they're not the story. The story is us. It's, and it's so interesting that really teeth have become this uh, decoder that we understand so well in, in recent times. Absolutely. And, and in fact, the, the course itself starts at the beginning half a billion years ago with the very first teeth that gave our ancestors dominance over the or- organic world. And it kind of ends <laughs> with uh, agriculture and, and the clues that we can get out of teeth as to sort of what triggered our change from being basic hunter-gatherers to, to being agriculturalists and developing civilization and so on. We can read that from our teeth as well. And these are all sort of a result of climate change issues. And, and I, I really get into that because, you know, climate tells us about the environment. You know, when the climates change, the environments change. And environmental change changes the foods that are available 
to our ancestors, and we can read that in our teeth. Do our behaviors that we adopt eventually lead to maybe some modifications in our teeth, or do our teeth, do changing teeth mean that certain species survive and others don't? Chicken and egg question. Yeah. Um, It's probably egg. Okay. In other words, uh, or maybe it's chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, in other words, uh, the way evolution works, as we understand it, organisms have a certain range of variation. And in one case, it's the shapes of their teeth. Those whose teeth are shaped in a way that gives them an advantage over other animals are going to outcompete survive longer, produce more offspring than those that have teeth that aren't as well suited for the environment. So the teeth have to come first. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as the environment changes, guess what? The organism whose teeth is best suited to that new environment is going to become dominant. Are there things we can learn about modern teeth that can help inform people like you who are researching ancient teeth? Absolutely, and the reverse. Okay. Um, oh. So there are things that we can learn about from modern teeth that can help us understand the distant past because essentially our teeth are the product of all of these evolutionary events that have happened over time. And we can basically go back and look at each of the little elements in our teeth, the chemistry, the structure, uh, the shape, and they had to get that way somehow. They look different from our ancestors and we can sort of trace back and understand how our teeth today developed and try and understand what caused those particular things to happen. On the other hand, in the opposite direction, we can use our distant past to understand what's wrong with our teeth today. And there's a lot wrong with our teeth today. Our ancestors didn't have crooked and crowded lower teeth. Our ancestors didn't have upper front teeth that come and jut out in front of the lower front teeth. Our ancestors didn't have impacted wisdom teeth. These are all new things that afflict us in our society, but they didn't exist in the past. Because the environment in our mouths was different than it is today. And our teeth evolved for the environment that was in our mouths generations and generations and generations ago. So we can use that information really to, to, to help us pr pr in, in clinical dentistry even. There wasn't as much sugar in diet generations and generations and generations ago. That's certainly true. And when you increase the amount of sugar that you are consuming, you change the mix of what are called acidophilic and acidophobic bacteria in your mouth. Um, bacteria that love acids and bacteria that hate acids. And those that love acids love sugars. And so there's, there's this constant balance. It's called the caries balance, actually, uh, that all animals that I'm aware of have. Um, dogs and cats and horses and cows and lions and tigers and bears all have a mix of good and bad bacteria, uh, acidophilic and acidophobic bacteria. That balance gets knocked out of whack when you put too much simple sugars in there for the harmful, the acidophilic bacteria to take over, to become dominant. 
Do you think differently about what you eat now than when you started your professional career? I try to not to think too hard. <laughs> okay. You know, I like I like pizza and ice cream and hamburgers too much. <laughs> Very good. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Peter Ungar is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and Director of the University of Arkansas's Environmental Dynamics Program and will lead a University of Arkansas Honors College seminar titled Teeth next fall. Our conversation took place inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Songs. <laughs> Arkansas Roy Buchanan was born in Ozark, Arkansas, in Franklin County, September 23, 1939, to parents Bill and Minnie Reed Buchanan. Roy became known as a guitarist guitarist and a pioneer of pinch harmonics with his usual Fender Telecaster guitar. Guitar Player Magazine ranks Buchanan as having among the 50 greatest guitar tones of all time. But he rarely used effects pedals. Buchanan just used his hands to achieve the swoops and bends of notes that he would become celebrated for in the 1970s. Buchanan and his electric guitar playing were the subject of a PBS documentary in 1971, which helped him land a solo record deal. Through the 1970s and 1980s, Buchanan released more than a dozen blues rock-oriented studio albums, a couple of which went gold. He allegedly turned down an offer to join the Rolling Stones and earned praise from the likes of John Lennon, Jeff Beck, and Merle Haggard. fans of American rockabilly, Roy Buchanan has the distinction of playing with Dale Hawkins, Dale's brother Jerry Hawkins, and their cousin Ronnie Hawkins. Dale Hawkins, of Suzy Q fame, lived in North Little Rock later in his career, while Ronnie Hawkins was born in Huntsville. In 1958, Buchanan made his recording debut on Chess Records with Dale Hawkins. Buchanan played with Dale for several years. Later, Buchanan joined Madison County native Ronnie Hawkins' band, The Hawks, to tutor Robbie Robertson on guitar. Buchanan can be heard playing bass on the Hawks' single, Who Do You Love? But as drummer Levon Helm of Phillips County explained it, Buchanan was too weird to stay in the band for too long. Not only did Buchanan tell people with a straight face that he was part wolf, he also didn't do any of the stage moves required by Ronnie. Buchanan just stood there and, as Helm told it, played the shit out of that guitar. Lesser known than as solo turns or as a bandmate, however, is Roy Buchanan's time as a session musician. Opening this episode of Arkansas was Bobby Gregg's Potato Peeler, featuring Buchanan on guitar. This 1962 song is thought to contain the first recordings of pinch harmonics. Bandleader Bobby Gregg was a drummer and producer. Gregg replaced Levon Helm and the Hawks backing Bob Dylan on Dylan's first electric tour after Helm quit in disgust, in part from all the booing. Greg also played drums on such iconic mid 1960s songs as Bridge Over Troubled Water and Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. Roy Buchanan's own studio work, which took place largely in the late 1950s and early 1960s, is not connected to any sessions of that stature, but he did record with some high profile names during this era, including Freddie Cannon, Bob Lumen, and heard here, Merle Kilgore. Bells are ringing and love can't come to soon. 
After being in the thick of it, Roy Buchanan eased out of music for a time in the late 1960s. He trained to become a barber and settled in the Washington, D.C. area. But the 1970s, again, saw interest in Roy Buchanan's guitar techniques rise, and not as an anonymous session player. Things bubbled up for Buchanan's solo career through the 1970s and most of the 1980s. He returned to Arkansas for a well-attended show at Little Rock's storied SOB Club in February 1987. But things never quite reached a boiling point for Roy Buchanan. And though Buchanan was said to have at last been controlling the anger issues and alcohol intake that were blamed for stalling his career in August 1988, he was arrested in Fairfax County, Virginia, following a domestic dispute. The next morning, Buchanan was found hanged in a cell. It was officially recorded as a suicide, which friends and family dispute. Roy Buchanan, sideman, solo performer, and session man, was 48 years old. Here in its entirety is Potato Peeler from 1962, credited to Bobby Gregg and his friends, featuring Roy Buchanan of Ozark, Arkansas, on guitar. Potato Peeler from 1962 by Bobby Gregg and his friends, featuring Franklin County, Arkansas native Roy Buchanan on guitar. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merks.
Arkansas since 1998. Tomorrow evening on the campus of the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, the World Languages Department at UAFS will present the next in their Double Exposure Global Film Series with Jane Eyre. It starts off with tea and scones. Then Roxy Wiley's talk about the film starts at 6.30, followed by the film itself at 7, a project that's funded in part by a grant from the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents an evening of live music by the winners of the 16th Van Cliburn International Piano Competition on Wednesday, April 19th, as part of their Van Cliburn Concert Series. The evening will highlight the artistry, skill, and passion of three musicians as they bring their internationally recognized talents to Bentonville. Tickets and more at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of living options from apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Wheeler. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Today's show produced inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 by Matthew. Contributors today included Randy Dixon and Stephen Cook. We had additional help from Jacqueline Froelich and the KUAR Newsroom. In Little Rock. All right, Matthew, uh, we're down to the Final Four in the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. The women will have the Final Four decided after tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had this bragging rights tournament, brackets, right, at yep. our workplace, like many workplaces do. Yeah. None of us have a team in the Final Four. Yeah, yeah, I think we had 10 brackets submitted, and nobody had a single team <laughs> in the Final Four. Collectively, we went 0 for 40. <laughs> but I, we can't be the only place that did that. Oh, I'm sure that's it's true. It's a crazy year. Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk about—I had said in our note that we would talk about who won the bracket tournament, mm-hmm. and we'll also talk about who lost the bracket oh, tournament, because that's bragging rights. Because okay. you got to brag about who did the worst. <laughs> so we're going to know tomorrow? We'll know tomorrow. Okay. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thank you so much for listening. Did, you, did I do the worst? I, I don't think so. Okay. All no. right. We'll find that out tomorrow. Thanks for being with us.